You're listening to the Alberta Advantage on CJSW 90.9 FM on Treaty 7 territory in Calgary. My name is Kate Jacobson and I produce the Alberta Advantage, where we offer analysis on Albertan and Canadian history and politics from a perspective that doesn't always get a lot of airtime. Hello and welcome to the Alberta Advantage. I am your host, Kate Jacobson, and joining Team Advantage today is Shiri Pasternak, co-author with Hayden King of Landback, a Yellowhead Institute red paper, which was released in October of 2019. Shiri, thank you for joining us here on the Alberta Advantage. Thanks so much for having me. So the Landback report was inspired by a report known as the Red Paper or Citizens Plus, written by First Nations leaders in Alberta in 1970. Before getting into the contents of your own report, could you tell us a bit about what the 1970 Red Paper was about, like why it came to be, what it was authored in response to, and what it contained? Absolutely. The red paper was a response to the white paper, which was a policy paper put out by the federal government on Indian policy. All those policy papers were called white papers, but it took on a particular meaning when uh, the paper focused on as a solution to the so-called Indian problem in Canada, uh, the elimination essentially of all essential rights and recognition for Indigenous treaty and sort of the special relationship between Indigenous people and the Crown um, as a result of colonization. And so the white paper came to mean an assimilationist policy, a paper that proposed that all reserves were gradually phased out or became municipalities. Um, that treaties um, cease to be the basis of recognition or difference between Canadians and um, Indigenous people, and a series of other policies that would essentially um, eliminate any differences between Indigenous people and Canadians. And it was based on this liberal understanding of equality being the most essential value of our society. And so the response was pretty swift and um, outraged by Indigenous people, partly because the white paper was the result of months of consultation between the um, Minister of Indian Affairs at the time and Indigenous communities across Canada, where, you know, the Liberal government, this was under um, Pierre Elliott Trudeau's government, uh, was promising to really uh, spearhead a meaningful change in the relationship and to deal with what was clearly evidently massive inequalities and all the outstanding issues arising from land dispossession and oppression and the residential schools and so on. And communities really felt like they were being listened to and that there was going to be a real change in society. And instead, they got this white paper. And so when it came out, you know, a lot of Indian associations, as they were called at the time across Canada, wrote response papers, but the red paper by Harold Cardinal really encapsulated a lot of that um, outrage and a lot of the demands that Indigenous people had to be recognized precisely in their differences, not only in their status as landholders and original landholders across the country, but also um, in a future looking relationship between Canadians and Indigenous people that would be different, that would restore land, that would meaningfully re meaningfully respect treaty relationships, that would 
um, you know, provide some means of reparations for what had been taken and so on. And instead it was the absolute opposite. Um, so this uh, red paper report, we'd always had an idea that we wanted to write at least one sort of powerful response to ongoing colonization in Canada in the form of an annual report. And so Lambac is the first of what will be a series of red papers that we publish every year to deal with um, major um, critical uh, um, issues and ideas um, coming out of Indigenous ideas of jurisdiction and governance against the um, colonization of, of the Canadian state. Mm-hmm. So 2015 saw the election of Pierre Elliott Trudeau's son, Justin Trudeau, and with it also a big push to promote a certain kind of reconciliation. The word decolonization was even thrown around, but many people have pointed out some major flaws in this approach, uh, mostly being that those conversations focused on the past rather than anything that is ongoing or contemporary and tended to exclude any mention of things like land. And resources, power, and specifically restoring any of that which had been stolen from Indigenous people. Could you tell us a bit about how this land back report serves as kind of a response to the reconciliation industry that is promoted by the Trudeau Liberals? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good question. And it sort of um, speaks back to the first major report that the Yellowhead Institute put out when we launched. We actually launched with a critique of the Liberal government's rights and recognition framework. And um, that overview of the record of Justin Trudeau's liberals on Indigenous rights really goes to the heart of your question, which is, um, behind all of the rhetoric around the new relationship um, that will be nation to nation between the Crown and Indigenous people, what has really changed? And there has been, in fact, a landslide of changes. Um, there's been more legislation introduced by Justin Trudeau's government on Indigenous people than in the last 150 years of the country. But what is the nature of that change exactly? Is it, as you ask, a change in the status of land for Indigenous people in Canada? Is there restoration of the um, original and ongoing crime of dispossession and land theft? Or is it, you know, more of the same? And what we found is that it's actually a landslide of change towards what we think is an acceleration of business as usual colonization under a kind of bias, a proliferation of um, so-called off-ramps from the Indian Act into legislation that um, encourages a delegation of Indigenous jurisdiction to the provinces, so an offloading of federal responsibility rather than a kind of recognition of Indigenous jurisdiction onto the provinces and... Um, you know, no radical revisions to the self-government and land claim policies, but rather, again, a proliferation of smaller policies that are meant to expedite the process, but really just um, break things down from territorial claims to a nation's traditional territory to sort of off one-off sectoral agreements um, around one resource or one area of land and so on. So really behind the discourses of reconciliation are um, a real image, I think, of what um, would be, would sort of 
smooth the path of development for business as usual in Canada, which would, which is a more participatory framework for Indigenous people to participate in resource extraction on their lands and to basically remodel their governments along more municipal lines. So speaking of business as usual colonialism, how is Indigenous consent generated or extracted even when it comes to land and water use in Canada? And what range of responses did your report find? The authorization of consent uh, for Indigenous people to resource extraction is um, a sort of very dense and complicated terrain, um, unfortunately. Um, And so what we looked at were sort of changes over the last 20 or 30 years that looked like there was an increasing um, attempt to gain consent from Indigenous people before development or extraction takes place on Indigenous lands. And part of this is motivated by uh, legal and constitutional changes in Canada. Um, in 1982, when the, when the Constitution was patriated, Section 35 recognized and affirmed Aboriginal and treaty rights. And there was an expectation that this would lead to um, major changes in the way that decisions were made. Um, and particularly when they affected in Indigenous people's land. Um, and so one way of authorizing consent is through a legal precedent called the duty to consult and accommodate that comes out of Haida, the Haida decision in 2004 and a series of other decisions as well. And the problem is consultation has become one of the main frameworks for authorizing so-called consent on Indigenous lands. but under that legal precedent, consent actually is not directly connected to consultation. So um, wherever Aboriginal rights could potentially be violated by development or extraction, now um, Indigenous people must be consulted, but there's no correlation between that consultation and and the ability for Indigenous people to say no once consulted. And so it leaves this sort of open-ended process that, um, as Arthur Manuel used to say, where process becomes its own reward and there's no um, outcome where Indigenous people can actually voice um, opposition uh, in any decisive in any decisive way. And so we look at that, the kind of regimes of consultation that have emerged that sort of flow in a number of directions, one of which is through environmental regulation processes where Indigenous people are consulted through, for example, the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act, um, now called the, the um, Impact Assessment Act, and um, also through private commercial contracts, for example, through impact and benefit agreements with companies where that consultation, again, um, sort of raises questions about whether or not it's actually consent that Indigenous people are giving to these projects when they're negotiated in confidential um, confidential commercial contracts rather than being able to bring to bear the whole jurisprudence on Aboriginal rights into the, into the conversation. Mm-hmm. One of the basic maxims I learned as a young feminist was um, consent isn't meaningful unless you have the actual ability to say no. I think so that's something very simple that also applies in this case as well. 
definitely my um, friend Eugene Kung, a lawyer for the Tsleil-Waututh, talks about all of the um, you know distress around the veto, the concept of the veto, whether Indigenous people should have the veto. So mm-hmm. uh, Canada and some provinces like British Columbia are ready to say that they're adopting the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which contains the principle of free prior and informed consent. But governments are very, very, very reluctant to say that that gives Indigenous people a veto. So they do these kind of mental gymnastics around how you can have consent but not a veto. And Eugene says, if you're fooling around with someone and they want to have sex and you say no, you don't say, well, you don't have a veto over this. (laughs) You can't kind of jump discourses from consent to veto where in one case it's clear that consent means that someone has the right to say no. Whereas in another case, if when you call it a veto, suddenly it becomes, you know, terrifying <laughs> to actually conceive. And, and I think there's been some interesting research around the word veto specifically, where like, if you pull settler Canadians, um, about like whether indigenous people should have a veto, you get like, oh, people really don't like that word. But if you poll like people around, should indigenous people have like the final say on projects that happen in their territory? People are like, Mm. oh yeah, that sounds about right. So something like governments and the media have kind of manufactured this word veto as kind of this scary, illegitimate right that indigenous Mm -hmm. people possess. Yeah, that's interesting. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what a more kind of restorative approach to consent for land and water use um, between Indigenous people and Canada would look like. That's a great question. In the final section of the report, the reclamation section, we look at a number of different ways that Indigenous people are exercising their jurisdiction on the land. And um, so the answer to that question is as different as the multiplicity of legal and political orders that exist across the country in Indigenous communities. Um, and that consent looks different um, depending on, you know, the particular practices in those communities for um, gaining internal consensus, but also relationships to non-human relations on the territory with whom people, um, with whom people are in relation and, um, you know, subject to their consent to some extent as well. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for example, tidy house warriors that we profile in the reclamation section are asserting their jurisdiction through the construction of tiny houses along the pipeline, the proposed pipeline route for the trans mountain pipeline. And, um, there's their assertions of jurisdiction look like, um, Sequetmec law, but also uh, very, very um, deep beliefs about Aboriginal rights in Canada being economic rights for Indigenous people as well that come from the Manuel family's own genealogy and political philosophy around Indigenous resistance. Um, other communities, um, you know, this looks very different. So we also looked at uh, the Labrador land protectors on the East Coast um, that it were fighting and continue to fight the Muskrat Falls Dam. And that was a much broader coalition of Inu, Inuit, and non-Indigenous people that came together in a coalition in order to protect waters. That meant something very different to different people within the coalition. 
but came as a result of a concern for the water uh, that was deeper than the kinds of claims being made by the province for the need to generate electricity for export or even, you know, the massive subsidies that uh, backstop that kind of construction against the will of the people. Mm -hmm. So what did the Lambac report find are the major ways in which Canada's governments deny and ignore Indigenous consent, particularly with regards to extraction and development? So we looked at a number of different ways that the Canadian government denies Indigenous consent, and we really take it back all the way to the doctrines of discovery in order to ground our analysis of why Canada thinks that actually it has the right to authorize extraction and development on Indigenous land and look at the fiction of Crown land as being the foundation for those claims. So, you know, this great quote by Lee Miracle that she once said when I went to a talk has always stuck with me, which is, why does a hat need so much land? If you look at the percentages of land distribution in the country, then you find, you know, 96%, I believe, of all land in Canada is crown land. Most of it is provincial. In some provinces like BC, you have like 98% of the land claimed by the province, for example. And in the Northern Territories, the the, uh, percentages flip towards federal crown holdings. But that is the beginning of the denial of Indigenous consent, which is the crown's claim to underlying title over all land in Canada, which dates back to British law and um, um, the, the laws of tenure there that were patriated here with colonizers who carried that law in their little hearts through the doctrine of reception <laughs> um, and came to apply to our own government But that is the beginning of a deep, deep deception about who the landholders are in this country. And we trace that, you know, through its various manifestations in how extraction is authorized. And then we look also at different tools that the government uses in order to reinforce these doctrines of discovery. So, for example, we led the biggest study of injunctions in the country in the context of First Nations and extraction. We looked at over 100 cases of injunctions filed by and against First Nations in the case of, um, well, we just looked at all injunctions and we found 99% of them had to do with extraction and development. And we found that when companies file for an injunction against First Nations, they succeed at a rate of a 86%, whereas when First Nations file injunctions to remove either provinces or corporations from their land, they lose at rates of 81 to 82%. So there are some broad tools of dispossession or some, let's say, um, more distinguished tools of dispossession through the Supreme Court of Canada, for example, through the duty of con- to consult jurisprudence. But then there's some just brutal, um, crude legal tools like the injunction that companies use to remove Indigenous peoples from their lands on very insubstantial tests that actually don't even allow for judges to bring in the, the um, case law on Aboriginal rights and title, which we saw, um, you know, in a spectacular way, unfold on Wet'suwet'en territory this year, 
when Coastal Gaslink successfully got an injunction against the Wet'suwet'en who won a landmark case in 1997 in Delgamook uh, that actually recognized the fact that they have never ceded their title to the crown and they were still removed by this company based on these this just flimsy test precedent of balance of convenience and the other tests for injunctions. So, you know, there's a number of different ways that Indigenous consent is is denied in, in Canada. And we try to do a survey of some of the main ones that we see in operation. So one of my favorite things to say here on the podcast is that Canada is fake, but the consequences are very real. And it's a very glib way for sure of saying something that I think is true, which is that, you know, this is a country that was founded on ideas like the doctrine of discovery that many people, when you explain it to them, recognize as illegitimate, which is settlers showing up to places that where other people already lived and had entire societies and nations and saying just like, oh, we've discovered all of this and this is ours, which is not a legitimate basis for any kind of nation or country, but that the consequences of it are incredibly, incredibly real for for Indigenous people. And you mentioned what happened in Wet'suwet'en territory earlier this year. But I'm also thinking about things like how colonization, you know, includes a gender regime that targets and disempowers women, transgender, queer, two-spirited people, and impacts, you know, decision-making authority around land and water and Indigenous communities and the cumulative impacts of extraction and removal from land and things like that. So the consequences of this indisputably kind of illegitimate idea of of Canada are very, very real. And they are around us and they are ongoing. It's not something that just happened in the past. It's an ongoing relation. Yeah, that's really the legacy of the country and more importantly, the political economy of the country. You know, so much of each dollar um, in Canada that is generated is uh, through either directly extraction or through uh, a proliferation of subsidiary industries that depend on extraction in order for themselves to be profitable. Absolutely. And that obviously has massive correlations with dispossession, not only because all of this land is indigenous land, but also there's a particular geography to reserve settlement Mm -hmm. in Canada as well, where you have most of the Canadian population concentrated on the southern border, but indigenous people live in every single region across the country and therefore their proximity to logging, mining, oil and gas infrastructures, hydroelectricity, and so on, are just, just put them on the front lines of all of these um, major extractive projects and, um, uh, you know, really in the line of fire when people are pushing, as they are more and more today, for a just transition to... Um, a different kind of economy, a more sustainable um, economy. I think I would understand those forms of recognition, which have been, as you really wonderfully point out, being one through, for the most part, Indigenous resistance to uh, previous practices that were perhaps more harmful as, as a kind of reform that exists in this relationship. And 
I think of it as similar, although not completely analogous to any reform that has been won by other movements, whether you're looking at uh, women's movements or movements for migrant justice or trade union rights, any sort of rights enjoyed by those groups, you know, were the, are the results of struggle, not of a benevolent government or group in power kind of bequeathing it uh, onto those people. But what I was thinking about when I was reading this section was the extent to which this recognition framework, which is is very much a framework that exists under capitalism. Um, you talk in the report about like pawning off bad projects on native people is is a barrier to um, a true form of justice or what decolonization um, would look like and what kind of going beyond that reclamation or what going beyond that recognition framework looks like to the rec- reclamation you talked about earlier in this interview. And I was just thinking about, can like the settler colonial state we live under, can the capitalist economic order we live under exist with what would be a truly meaningful form of decolonization and not just lip service? Which I know is a big question. (laughs) (laughs) But it is the question. I mean, I think we raise it repeatedly around how congruent indigenous law is with capitalism. You know, there are differences uh, within our institute about where to come down on this question, I think. You know, it's important also to realize that indigenous self-determination can mean participation in the market economy and in um, resource extraction. Um, as it always has. I mean, Indigenous people have been incredibly adaptive economically to, you know, wage labor economy in order to get important cash into their into their economies in order often to actually support um, going out on the land and getting skidoos and having access to their territories and so on. But also just because we live in a society that demands certain kinds of participation um, in the market economy. Um, so we're careful not to say this is an anti-capitalist, um, this is an anti-capitalist position on what indigenous governance and jurisdiction must look like. Mm-hmm. But certainly the people that I work most closely with are, you know, quite anti-capitalist in the sense of, I'm not necessarily, um, in the sense of being sort of Marxist and having a critiques of a, um, a kind of wage labor economy, but more in the sense of being extremely critical of the kinds of ecological externalization necessary in order to support a capitalist economy, the values that engender class stratification, which are totally foreign and deeply disrespectful from an indigenous perspective of how people are treated particularly elders and children, um, the uh, assertion of Indigenous law, certainly in, with a, in, by a lot of the communities that I work with against resource extraction, are really based fundamentally in a different epistemological worldview about human beings and our role on Earth, which is you know, very diametrically opposed to a kind of human-centered economic organization of society. Um, and so on. And so, you know, I see a lot of Indigenous people really being at the forefront, um, not really 
I guess, being at the forefront of an, of an anti-capitalist or a new society, but really sort of, um, living through, through the, the organization of their own societies already, always, um, modeling a different way of being that has persisted in parallel to settler economy and settler political systems, um, that are deeply inspiring and that I think show incredible leadership at this moment. Shiri, on behalf of, of everyone here at Team Advantage, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast and talking with us about your report um, that you co-authored with Hayden King, Land Back, a Yellowhead Institute red paper. It was an absolute pleasure having you on. I, I love your podcast and it was an absolute pleasure to be on. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can hear a longer version of this episode and many more on albertaadvantagepod.com. So long, Calgary.